Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Pain, swelling, injury, and joint stiffness can all lead to a limited range of motion. And when your foot hurts, it can be difficult or painful to even walk. Foot and ankle orthopedics, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. 21 seasons of providing health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, and welcome to On Call with Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us during our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. Tonight's topic is highlighting orthopedics, specifically foot and ankle issues. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University is Dr. Gregory Neely, an orthopedic surgeon with Orthopedic Institute, and podiatrist Dr. Tyler Harrell, who joins us via Zoom. Welcome, Greg and Tyler. Thanks for having us. Dr. Neely, if you don't mind, uh, give us a little bit about your background and your practice. Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a fellowship trained orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon. Um, I um, uh, was kind of took the road less traveled a little bit to, to get to where I am. I was a physical therapist for about seven years in the southern part of uh, South Dakota before I went back to medical school. Uh, I went to University of South Dakota for medical school and then I did uh, orthopedic residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota and uh, then uh, um, decided to do a, a fellowship and some further my training in foot and ankle uh, um, orthopedics which I did down at Baylor in Dallas, Texas. Excellent. How long have you been in the area here? Yeah, so I've been uh, back practicing orthopedics now for a little over 11 years now. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. This is your first time on the it show? It is, it is. Excellent. Okay. Great, great. And Dr. Harrell, if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about yourself and your practice. Yes, so I uh, graduated in 2015 from Des Moines University. I uh, got my podiatry degree, my podiatric medicine degree. Uh, from there, did my three-year surgical training at uh, Graduated at a hospital in Henry Ford Macomb up in Detroit, Michigan. I worked at Avera in Brookings for three years and relocated to the Des Moines Metro um, in Iowa, where I now practice. Um, been here now just under, it'll be two years in August. So um, kind of a roundabout way, always had interest in lower extremity and here I am today. Excellent, and uh, I, uh, I owe Tyler one uh, because He's here, he woke up this morning not knowing he was gonna be on TV tonight. <laughs> uh, so uh, our previous scheduled podiatrist, Dr. Prusha here in Brookings, just he and his wife just had a baby. And so congrats to, to them, baby Landon, I believe. <laughs> and so best wishes to them. Uh, so thankfully, Tyler stepped it up. And he's, you're not a Prairie Doc rookie. Nope, this is my second time on the show. I think the first time was, I was in Brookings, I think it was like January or February of 19, if I remember correctly. So if you don't mind uh, helping us to differentiate a little bit, what is a podiatrist? What goes in the training of a podiatrist? Yep, so it's a four-year degree. Uh, you get your DPM is our initials. After that, we do a three-year surgical residency. Um, the 
the old day of podiatry of toenail clipping, calluses, um, basic podiatry like that. It still happens. We still do that stuff. I do that stuff on a daily basis. But at the same time, we're doing, as podiatrists, we're doing total ankle replacements. We're doing ankle fusions. We're doing bunions. We're doing midfoot fusions. We do ankle fractures. We do traumas. We do pretty much anything is in our scope of practice as long as it's allowed within the, the area that you practice. Um, board certification process still happens the same as all other medical specialties and even medicine in general. Um, so, I mean, it's you're still doing a, a pretty rigorous uh, education and treatment program and you it's end, ends up being qu quite extensive when you're done so but we're doing pretty much anything ankle and foot related excellent well once again thank you both for coming on the show and and helping to answer our viewers questions before we start our conversation we invite you our audience to submit your questions viewers can contact us three ways call 1-888-376-6225 Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. Well, we've got some questions already, and we might just as well uh, dive into one here from the get-go here. This one was from email. I have foot drop caused by spinal stenosis. Is it possible to regain movement, or is this something that I'll have to live with? I also have a plate and 10 screws in my ankle, same side from a previous fracture. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about foot drop and some of the causes and, and what, what, you're, what you might think of that. Sure. Um, so foot drop can be caused for multiple, uh, multiple reasons. It sounds like in this case it's a neurologic from a um, problem in the back. And uh, a lot of times when the nerves are involved, it's a lot, lot trickier to, uh, to, to manage because uh, unfortunately with nerves, if something, something goes awry with them, it's uh, usually something that's kind of hard to, hard to redo. Um, the workaround for that is, uh, is sometimes we're able to do tendon transfers, so we take a, a, a muscle that still has good innervation to it and try to transfer it to a different location to try to make up for that, and uh, we have some success with that, uh, uh, doing that. Uh, uh, back in the old days, uh, uh, we learned from polio that, that sometimes we would do fusions of ankles to, so that they didn't drop down, they also couldn't bend it up. Um, that kind of comes with its own set of uh, set of challenges. So that's not done all that commonly anymore. Um, there's been pretty good advances in uh, bracing options as well, and so a lot of times we'll we'll do some non-surgical things to try to help folks along. And then of course uh, the big thing is is uh, physical therapy. Try to maximize what the patient has and and hopefully get them as functional as we can. Uh, with it. Um, sometimes people have foot drop because of trauma. Um, you know, some uh, good example is somebody drops a brick or something on the top part of their ankle. It can actually sever the tendon in those situations. We try to repair it either primarily or with, uh, with a, a tendon grafting options and whatnot to try to restore their function as best we can. Yeah. You mentioned bracing, and so one of the things I think of is an AFO brace. Correct. Very common. Yeah. Kind of this stiff 
thing that 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 helps hold the foot up yeah, so they don't have that foot drop and trip over it and sure. hurt themselves further yep. and I mean when when do you think about doing that versus surgery yeah it, so that's again that's a lot of it is patient dependent upon what, what you know what the patient wants and what we what we think we're going to be able to able to get get to work again in a neurologic patient uh, like like this uh, person's question a lot of times we'll have to do nerve tests to see you know what we've got in terms of uh, available options in that regard for tendon transfers and whatnot um, if, if we talk about uh, about uh, bracing options, that things have have really kind of improved a lot. We used to just lock the ankle uh, in place, and now we have braces that are much less bulky. Um, there, some of them are made from carbon fiber materials that are relatively thin, uh, relatively small support in the back that just to keep the foot from dropping down. But it almost acts as a spring to help lift it up uh, when they're walking, and patients really seem to like those and much less bulky than what than what we used to have to to have folks deal with. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Tyler, we had some people wondering about bunions. What is a bunion and what do you recommend for someone with a bunion? The bunion is a deformity of the foot that the bone in the foot is called the metatarsal. It's, I would compare it almost to like the top of the hand if you want to compare it to something more comparable. And the idea is that the deformity is where you get an angulation or what people call that, or they see that big bump on the side of their great toe, and you get a pull that occurs by the tendons, which is not where it's supposed to be anatomically. We, we want that to be in a straight line pull where it's coming from down in the leg or in the foot, and you can get a deformity where, I always describe it if you look at like a door hinge, if you, you know, pull on a door a little bit, it's in straight line pull, but if you have it where you have to pull it a longer ways you get this larger deformity and you can see the toes drifting you get just a, a it's a deformity of the bones in the foot there's a lot of options to treat this one of the most common is we try to do wide enough and deep enough toe box shoes making sure it's comfortable um, it really ends up being a biomechanical problem it's usually how the foot is functioning how the lower extremity is functioning um, it's you know, it's, a, it's an advantage of certain tendons in the foot that are overpowering another part of the foot, which you then get this deformity from that. So if we end up in surgery, we gotta correct the deformity. We gotta correct where the problem is occurring to fix the bunion. We don't always jump straight to surgery. There's options with custom orthotics or over-the-counter orthotics. You know, it is patient-specific and it's, there's different severities, um, but it, it's, it is very possible to treat conservatively, but also, there's many different types of bunion surgeries that can be completed um, to fix it as well. Sure, excellent. Uh, this uh, caller from Chamberlain asked, what are the side effects of cortisone injections? Uh, when would you think about doing a cortisone injection and what are some risks with that? Yeah, so um, I think f first of all, cortisone can be a very valuable tool for folks. Um, usually we're using it for, for people that have arthritis. Uh, in different in, in, in different joints, um, uh, as of late, we've we've done a lot more ultrasound guided injections where we use an ultrasound machine to make sure we're targeting the right the right joint. Um, that's not 
uh, super common to need to do that in uh, the knee, for example. It's a you know pretty big joint, and we can usually get in there pretty predictably uh, with with a needle for an injection. But around the foot and, and the ankle in particular, the joints are so close and so small together. A lot of times we'll guide where we're going, so we make sure we're we're doing what we're hoping to do uh, and targeting the right joint. Um, what cortisone does is it's it's an anti-inflammatory medication, and we're giving giving it in the place where we think the problem is stemming from. Um, so uh, there are side effects to it and, and, and um, some of it is, uh, is is related to of course the just the discomfort of having the in the injection there's always a risk of infection that's a very low risk but of course it can happen um, sometimes we'll see a little bit of, uh, of what we call blanching around the skin where the injection site goes so it will kind of look white there for a little while afterwards uh, most of the time that will that will improve and kind of go back to normal as time goes on um, the, the probably the biggest drawback of injections is again it doesn't really fix the problem a lot of times it but it makes people feel more comfortable um, and so repeated injections tend to lose their their efficacy over time in other words the more frequently we do them the less likely they are to help you so um, and sometimes that's frustrating for patients when they had benefit but it only lasts for a couple months and then they'll see us and and we're like well we got to wait a little bit longer right. before we do that again and whatnot. Uh, the other thing I like about those injections, uh, and I'm sure Tyler uses them this way as well, is for diagnostic purposes. Uh, in other words, we sometimes it's hard to tell where pain is coming from, especially around the foot and ankle where so many structures anatomically are so close together. So we'll inject a particular joint and, and hope that we get a positive result from that. And if we do, and then the pain comes back, I think that we're much more able to predict the positive outcome with surgery if that's what we end up doing down the road. Excellent, excellent. Um, there is also, I think, this this same caller from Chamberlain asked, is it detrimental to wait to get a, re a joint replacement uh, or, or wait until the pain compromises daily activities? When do you recommend Yeah, that, that's a that's that? a really, really a hard thing for us to counsel patients on. I, I, it, what, what I usually will tell patients are, or if, if you know if your x-rays and your imaging studies match what your what your symptoms say and you're just not able to do the things you want to do on a day-to-day -day basis I think it's reasonable to pull the trigger on on, on doing doing some kind of surgical intervention joint replacement or what have you uh, and, and that that's how we treat it in orthopedics that's how we treat it with with shoulder replacements and knee replacements right. and hip replacements and everything um, it, it, it's it's a quality of life thing um, in the same respect if you're 30 and you you know have had you know even if your x-ray says that you have an arthritic ankle it's probably not a great idea to jump right into a joint replacement sure. so sure excellent well we'll talk a little bit more replacement here pretty soon i do want to talk about our first uh, role in here keeping your balance is a key part of successful aging especially in ankles and feet strength and mobility will help improve that balance and keep you away from the cane and walker Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke to a physical therapist about how to improve your balance. Support to be, meet your balance needs, going just up and down. Dr. Kayla Geffrey is a physical therapist with Avera Medical Group in Brookings, and she specializes in helping patients with improving balance. And there are different uh, receptors in your ankles and your feet called proprioceptors. And so um, when your feet and your ankles are um, adjusting and feeling the ground, um, it just tells your body where you are in space and it can help adjust. And that is basically the one of the foundations of balance. She says two main concepts that will help with improving balance is mobility. Mobility is how your ankle moves. So when you're moving your toes up and down or your foot side to side, that's your mobility and strength. 
Strength is the muscles coming from your leg and attaching um, across the ankle down into the foot. Those are the muscles, that's what plays into the strength. Dr. Geffrey says without those two, it would be difficult to keep balance. So when you think about when you're walking across an uneven surface, your ankle needs to move around to adjust walking on those different surfaces, and then you need the strength in order to help keep your ankle strong on when you're walking across those surfaces as well. Dr. Geffrey says to start improving balance, use your full range of motion when strengthening your ankles and feet and progress from there. Some simple things that you can do are just doing some toe raises um, and heel raises. So if you can sit in a chair, bringing those feet up and down, um, working on single leg balance that engages all of the muscles in that foot and the ankle to help keep yourself upright. A tip she recommends is to challenge yourself. If you notice that standing on one foot is difficult, Try practicing that, even if it's just a few seconds, um, you're engaging those muscles and again, those proprioceptors to help engage and challenging the balance is what's gonna help make it better. Dr. Geffrey also recommends using the ABCs for mobility, which is using the point of your foot. You bring that toe up and down for A. And drawing every letter of the alphabet. The ABCs covers every single motion that the ankle can do. Dr. Geffrey says keeping balance should be a goal as we age, and keeping ankles and feet strong and limber will help achieve that goal. Those are the first things that are on the ground, so you need strong ankles and feet to control your balance. Well, Dr. Neely, I understand you have a background in physical therapy. So I'm sure you have some appreciation for you physical bet. therapists. You bet. Yeah, they're very valuable to, uh, to what we do uh, uh, in, in orthopedics in general, but uh, uh, of course, particularly for lower extremity stuff and uh, in, in, in what I work with, we use uh, physical therapists and their expertise a lot. Um, obviously, uh, we just, just learned their um, ankle strength and range of motion are incredibly important for balance, and, and so it's real important to, to keep up with, uh, with that, uh, especially as folks age. Uh, it's a good way to ward off the demons from falling. So. Absolutely, absolutely, very important. Tyler, this uh, was an email question. I I fell on stairs last year and hit my ankle hard. I, it was swollen for a month in the spot and red, but did not bruise, and I could always walk no problem. It is hurting in that spot now and still seems a little swollen sometimes. What would make that happen? It could be a number of things. Um, I think you'd want to get, you know, the fact that you're still having some pain and discomfort a month after, if I remember that correctly, um, you'd want to be seen by orthopedic, podiatry, someone that deals with foot and ankle consistently. Uh, I think you're going to need to get an x-ray on that to ensure that what if there was a fracture that wasn't known, you know, just because you don't have bruising and, you know, you have swelling, you have maybe a little redness. Sometimes you don't get bruising in all these injuries. It could be something as very subtle as a stress reaction or a stress fracture or even a full fracture from that uh, fall and hitting that area. I think an x-ray would be warranted, you know, and we we would evaluate that, make sure there isn't a fracture. If it's not fractured, there can be soft tissue damage, which can, which can take six to eight weeks or you know, four to six weeks to really heal itself. And that's when we actually treat it with ankle braces, cam boots, immobilization, icing, elevating, all of the above. Um, I, I would wanna be able to see that ankle in person and get an x-ray and be able to actually look at it before you know, I give too much further evaluation on you know, what's causing it? Is there something else going on? Um, it could be as simple as 
you had some trauma to the vessels of the lower extremity, which are causing it to continue to swell. Um, I think it needs to be evaluated further in person or with an x-ray at least. Excellent. Um, Dr. Neely, going back to the case where someone, you know, has arthritis, the foot or ankle, and now they've been, maybe they've tried injections, they help some, but they don't last. What are some factors leading you to recommend a uh, replacement? Sure. And, and I understand we have some pictures we can yeah, maybe look at Well, yeah, so the decision to do surgery is uh, not one that we take lightly. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately in the orthopedic foot and ankle world, we've got, you know, things like braces and physical therapy, and then we've got big surgical reconstruction things. And there's not, not unfortunately, a lot in, in the middle in that regard. Um, sometimes we can scope the ankle and kind of clean up loose uh, loose stuff that may be floating in there, but once the cat's out of the bag and the arthritis is severe, we're, we're kind of stuck with really with two main surgical options. Uh, first of which would be an ankle fusion uh, or ankle arthrodesis uh, as it's called, uh, and the second is an ankle replacement. And uh, again, pluses and minuses of each of those things. Uh, for the ankle replacement, we have to remove uh, some bone to put put the, 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 the new metal components in with a plastic spacer between them, uh, whereas for an ankle fusion, we don't have to take very much bone out. We just prepare it, the, the joint uh, so that it heals together. Uh, and in a fusion, once that joint heals together, it doesn't move anymore, but we haven't cut out a, a lot of bone to get to that point in time. And, and, and so, uh, again, I, I think that, that there's debate and the pendulum is shifting towards ankle replacements for sure. I think that most people, and Tyler maybe would, would agree or disagree, but I, I still think probably the majority of ankle arthritis is treated with a fusion, um, yeah. especially in a younger, more active patient uh, as folks are a little bit older. Um, because an ankle replacement will wear out, it's not if, it's when it wears gotcha. out, um, that, that a replacement, again, it seems to be a little bit better option for somebody that's a little bit maybe lower impact or a little bit older. Um, so um, I've got some, some pictures of, uh, of what an ankle replacement looks like uh, here. Um, that maybe we can have the, have the team uh, queue up here a minute. Yep. Images up there. So okay, so this is actually a, a actually a different uh, different case that we've got here. This is somebody that actually had some um, some midfoot arthritis and a collapsed arch. Uh, we treated this patient with what's called a triple arthrodesis, which is actually a fusion of the hind foot. Um, if you kind of look in this area um, here, um, not sure if the teleprompter is working. Let's maybe click one and then. Okay. Circle. If we look in that area there, oop. One more there. I don't know if one's the eraser or well, one's the yeah. <laughs> marker. In any event, anyway. what, what we can see on that x-ray is that, is that the, the front part of the foot is kind of moving over to the right uh, towards the little toe and the, and the back part of the foot is kind of moving to the inside part and that, that we see in somebody that's, that's having an arch that collapses. Um, so um, if we can, uh, can show the next picture, please. So this is uh, is what uh, the picture on the right uh, is is the same patient after we had uh, operated on them, uh, and so you can see um, a, a couple of um, of um, pieces of metal in the midfoot uh, where we fuse that joint, and then I'll have you go to the next picture again, please. Um, so again, this is a preoperative image um, from. Uh, um, from before, that's the post-operative image. Uh, after we reconstructed, you can you can see that we've got that uh, uh, the 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 arch uh, height kind of reestablished there. If we draw a line right through there, oh, this darn thing isn't working still. That's okay. Anyways, uh, we, we've restored the arch with that, and you can see it takes a fair amount of metal to get uh, to get these things to to hold in place. 
um, uh, while we're getting things to heal uh, in, in through there. But uh, um, what we've done here is we've we've restored the uh, the arch height in there and and uh, and, and help that patient's midfoot arthritis, uh, but also help the the problem that they had with the collapsed hind foot uh, uh, there. So excellent, excellent. Um, so a repair like that. Um, are they usually good to go? And they, how long is the recovery? Yeah, this is a this is a lengthy recovery. Uh, this is the again another kind of uh, kind of burr in the saddle of uh, of of us that do, that do this kind of work. Is it's a long recovery for patients. Uh, it's a burr in our saddle, but definitely in the patients as well because uh, they'll frequently uh, need to be non weight bearing for an extended period of time. So we'll have patients get around with a, a knee scooter or crutches or a walker, sometimes even a wheelchair, just to protect this because this hardware just isn't stable enough to allow people to walk around on it yet. And so sometimes we're talking two, three months of being off this uh, off this thing to allow things to heal, uh, which is frustrating. Most of the time, once we get you know down the road four to six months, people are pretty happy that they had it done because again, we don't usually we just haven't jumped right into this right away. They've 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 done all the non-operative things uh, like Tyler mentioned before with bracing and therapy and whatnot. So. Excellent. We've got all sorts of questions from people um, and so there's a question about bone spurs and this caller from Sioux Falls asks uh, what are non-surgical options for treating a bone spur? Uh, Dr. Harrell what, what would you say about that? What are bone spurs? So a bone spur is essentially a extra growth. Um, you'll oftentimes see excess stosis or an osteophyte um, is the medical term used for a bone spur. A lot of times it's a secondary problem that's been caused by tightness of an Achilles tendon. Like if you get one on the back of your heel, it's gonna be a tight Achilles tendon that the pull of the tendon, your body is trying to essentially protect itself and it puts more bone down to try to shorten the distance from A to B and you end up having that tightness causes the, the spurring or the bone growth to occur. Um, it's usually another, it's a biomechanical cause. It's a, it's a reason something else is causing this excess bone growth to occur. Conservative measures, orthotics, uh, whether it be over the counter, custom, depends on you know what you're needing and an evaluation would help you to get that to be uh, more, I guess, defined, but you can use offloading donuts, pads, bracing, all of the stuff that we've talked about conservatively. I think a lot of stuff we end up going back to are trying inserts, orthotics, braces to essentially offload the pressure, but we have to, like Dr. Neely said about injections, it's kind of a band-aid. You know, we're, we're, we're really kind of, kind of not solving the problem. We're, we're trying to make the symptoms better. Um, until we can really correct the actual problem, the spur can still be there or it can get larger. Sometimes they never get any bigger. It just kind of depends on the situation. But it's an excess of growth in a certain area caused by something else. Very good. Um, and so just to clarify, is that all the same true for plantar fasciitis? Are they the same thing? So I'm a big, the, the spurring that occurs on the bottom of the heel when you get plantar fasciitis is due to the plantar fascia being tight so your body is trying to get that protect or try to get that position to not be as tight so it, it puts more bone down to try to shorten the distance the spurring is not what's causing the pain in in my belief the spurring is not the the painful process it's the inflammation 
of micro trauma and micro little tears to that ligament that is causing the pain and the, the trouble people have with plantar fasciitis. So that's where the injections with steroids come in because it decreases the swelling, the icing, the elevation, the all of the above, the inserts to support that to try to take the tension off of the plantar fascia. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, we've got another email question here. What is the long-term prognosis for flat feet? How do you maintain your foot? And how do you suggest, uh, what do you suggest for heel pain and pronating of the foot while getting older? What would you say about that, Dr. Neal? Yeah, so um, the, the case that I showed just a little bit ago uh, is, an, is kind of the surgical way of, of treating that. And, and again, that's kind of on that, on that end extreme of, of treatment. Uh, a lot of times we have really good luck uh, with, uh, with an orthotic where we, we kind of try to build the ground up to the foot so that that foot doesn't have to go quite so flat. Sure. Um, and, and that really seems to be helpful for people. Uh, but in addition to that, as we've mentioned earlier, physical therapy can be very beneficial for for, for this as well because uh, as a person's foot gets flat the uh, the uh, the calf muscle gets tight and and, and, and uh, as uh, Tyler mentioned that we tend to to, to try to treat the biomechanics of that. So we have to stretch what's tight and strengthen what's weak, and that's where physical therapy comes in. Um, we do use braces a fair amount uh, for, for folks that have this as well. Um, sometimes this is a muscle tendon problem, sometimes it's a ligament problem, Some most of the time it's both. Uh, I think you'd agree with that too, Tyler, which is uh, you know sometimes challenging. But uh, again, th those are the things that, that I think can really be helpful for people. And, and the good news is the vast majority of the people that we see that, that have a progressive flat foot deformity as they age, we can manage conservatively without these big surgical interventions. Um, patients just have to kind of be, be understanding that it's not a quick fix uh, a situation and, and whatnot, but the good news is most of the time we have a pretty good success rate with conservative measures. I feel like almost everyone has tight calves, and I feel like <laughs> tight calves lead to so many different foot problems. Agreed. Is there, why is that? Yeah, again, we, we think it's, it's the biomechanics that that, that, that that leads to. So there's actually two muscles which, which come together to form the Achilles tendon, and one of them crosses the knee joint. And that one in particular tends to get tight. And so for folks that stand a lot uh, um, and, and whatnot, they, they, that tends to be more of, a, more of a culprit for them. And what tends to happen is if the ankle doesn't have the range of motion to bend up, then something has to give, give in that regard. And whether it's the Achilles tendon at the insertion point, or it's the plantar fascia, or it's, or it's the pain across the ball of the foot, uh, we, we see these things just break down in time. And we all circle it back to the biomechanics of that tight, tight calf. And there's multiple studies now that, are, that are, are showing that that's kind of the culprit behind a lot of this stuff. So maybe it's not just in mythology, maybe we all have an Achilles, uh, <laughs> a, right. weak, a weak Achilles. I think you're right. <laughs> Inside our cells are all the tools we need to heal ourselves from injury. Until now, the challenge has been getting those cells that are wired for healing on the fast track to a damaged joint or area. Join Avera as they talk with On Call with Prairie Doc about this potential new generation of pain relief. Orthobiologics is a field of medicine that harnesses the power of your natural biology to heal something that's been damaged over time. When you can use a cell and encourage it or induce it to become something else, it can actually take the place of what's been degenerated. So platelet-rich plasma are the platelets in the blood, and those can be put into any part of the body to induce stem cells that already live there. 
So what I do is have patients come in. I'm a sports doc. I get people exercising. So people come in for 20 minutes of fairly vigorous exercise. That gets their heart pumping, gets their blood pumping, gets their veins nice and big so it's easier to draw the blood and it increases their platelet count. And they pull the blood and they put in a centrifuge and spin it. We use a double spin method to increase the concentration. So we take about 18 cc's of blood and that creates six cc's of PRP. When they're done processing, they get in position and I inject those platelets, the PRP, back into that joint. And it's sweet, obviously, surgery is usually a last case option. You really don't want to go to that, so I'm really glad we can do this and hopefully I'll just be in a boot for four, four weeks and then I'm ready to go afterwards, so it's a pretty easy process. In that person that doesn't have as many cells, you could actually harvest cells from somewhere else in the body. And there's a lot of places you can get them, but the two most common places is adipose, which is the science name for fat under your skin. The second place is bone marrow. Now, the stem cell procedure is a bit more involved. Um, I numb the skin and I numb the adipose, the fat layer under the skin, and then I let that sit for a while and let the cells kind of percolate and let the, the fluid surround them to open them up. And then I remove those cells. They go through a process of screens where they get cut smaller and smaller and smaller so they can fill in the gaps in the cartilage. Drying the bone marrow is, is we do in a sterile technique. We turn our, our exam room into an operating room and we're gowned and gloved. Um, we clean the area, make a small incision, and then uh, the needle goes into the bone marrow to withdraw the bone marrow aspirate. Then after that, the patient comes back into the room. We inject it one at a time, a little bit of the adipose, a little bit of the bone marrow, and a little bit of the platelets. And it's going to feel pretty full because of that. And the way that the cells work is they increase inflammation. So I always tell patients, it always hurts a little worse. It gets worse before it gets better. You hang in there and try to uh, breathe through it, muscle through it, it'll be better on the, on the other end. Well, it really is amazing some of the things they can do now. And this ties in with a question from a caller from Hot Springs. Does platelet-rich plasma therapy work effectively for joint issues? I, Dr. Harold, do you have much experience with PRP or anything like that? No, I don't. Um, we did some in residency. We, I, I've seen it done in the OR. Sure. Um, Clinic-wise, I have not done it myself. Um, there's some limitations to foot and ankle being able to use PRP and a lot of times it's insurance causes that kind of limit to what we have but um, I don't have a definitive answer on the the PRP side of things yeah um, how about you? How about, how about you, Dr. Dewey? Yeah, so again, we do utilize it. Uh, we tend to, uh, in my practice, I use it a lot for adjunctive procedures for other things. We use it for, for grafting uh, bones that we're worried about healing, for example. We use bone marrow aspirate for that. Uh, PRP, we do use uh, uh, around 10 in applications uh, a fair amount. There are some insurance uh, coverage issues with that uh, sure. because, again, it's kind of a kind of a black box in, in, uh, in the orthopedic world that we don't know how effective it is. Uh, uh, it helps some people and other people it doesn't, so. Excellent. Uh, another caller from Hot Springs said, can orthotics or other methods help delay having to get knee surgery? Dr. Harrell, could you speak on that? Theoretically, and the idea behind it would be that, yeah, the idea of supporting your foot, and if you have a flat foot deformity or you have a, a cause for it to, to have an orthotic, um, the idea would be is getting that foot back into anatomical alignment 
and we all know the song as a kid, everything's connected. There is <laughs> play on the knee, on the hip, on the back. Um, everything goes on its way up. And I mean, I can't tell you definitively that it's going to stop the progression of having a knee problem or something along those lines. But the idea behind it is if we can get the foot in an anatomical position and get it in the position that it is more efficiently working, it's going to take strain off other parts of the body. And hopefully we can decrease some of the effects on the knee and the hip. Um, if we, I would say if we can delay you from going to the OR for a knee or a hip or a back problem, even if it's two, three months, that's two, three months that you didn't have for surgery. But if you need surgery for something else, if it's nothing that an orthotic is going to do, that'd be something that an orthopod um, for a knee or a hip would need to evaluate. Um, but the idea is that, yeah, it could help you. Is it going to solve everything? You still got to fix the problem at hand. Um, there are benefits to it, though. So, yes, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, the, the old song, This the, my nephew uh, uh, recently, his elbow was hurting, and uh, so I was, I went through, he's like five, or, and, and I went through, well, the elbow's connected to the arm bone, and, the, and my brother made a snide remark, oh, is that how you remember what's connected to what <laughs> when, you're, when you're with patients? So, um, going back to uh, ankle replacement uh, surgery, I think we've got these pictures uh, work, uh, up now again, and let's look at that. Uh, tell us about, uh, walk us through a case if you don't mind. Yeah, so this, this is a, um, a preoperative x-ray uh, here where we can see uh, the, an the ankle joint here, and you can see particularly in this back part right here uh, that we have bone rubbing against bone there, um, and so this uh, this poor patient is, is having quite a bit of pain uh, with any time they're moving and walking and trying to work through this. So I'll have you pull the next picture up if you don't mind. So this is the post-op uh, x-ray of, of that, and, and so what you can see then is again, uh, metal components in there with a plastic spacer, that's that clear space that's right between those two metal pieces there. And so that is kind of what's making up for the cartilage that's in there. Uh, and again, the nice thing with a replacement as opposed to a fusion is that this lets uh, the ankle go through a bit of range of motion uh, there. And I'll have you pull the next picture again. Um, this is a different view of that same patient looking directly, directly at it. And again, I think you can really appreciate just how narrow uh, the, the, the joint surfaces are and, and how that we've got bone rubbing against bone. And I think you can just imagine and kind of feel that the grating and grinding that sometimes patients get with this. And again, I'll show you uh, the next picture if you don't mind. So again, this is the view looking straight on after, after that joint replacement. And so we've gone in and we've cleaned up any of the spurs that were in uh, on both sides of the joint and then again, again resurfaced that. And, and so uh, these patients tend to be, tend to be uh, quite happy afterwards uh, um, with, with these things because they're able to move it, but their pain is improved. And the studies show that both a fusion and a replacement uh, are, are beneficial for pain relief about the same amount. Um, but patient satisfaction and their and their walking mechanics is better, of course, after the replacement because it, it, it can move it still. So, so again, in the right patient, uh, replacements are, are very very beneficial. Yeah, that's fascinating what they can they can do there. Yeah. Know? So, um, we're going to do a lightning round now, where we try to get to a bunch of questions. So we'll try to keep it to just a, a minute or two with each response. Uh, Dr. Harrell, a caller from Alcester asks, are there any effective treatments out there for foot neuropathy? And do the over-the-counter products advertised on television really help with foot neuropathy? That could be a whole show in itself on neuropathy. <laughs> yes, yes. N nerves are really difficult to treat. It's 
generally how when I was in Brookings, I did my private practice. It was we try some oral medication to see if we could help the symptoms. There's some topicals like capsaicin creams, uh, things that you're likely going to need a, a script for a prescription for. But there's also other stuff over the counter like lidocaine creams, um, salon paws, I think, is one that you can get over the counter. Um, it would be something worth trying. As for a lot of the other stuff, I, you got to find out why the cause of the neuropathy is happening to really, it could be a, a anemia, a vitamin deficiency, is it from chemotherapy, is it diabetes, it, you know, what's causing the, the, the reason for it. Um, what I would tell you is if you find something that's working for you, keep with it to an extent. I don't experimental stuff. I, I don't have a lot of backing to support that, but th there are some options to try to help the symptoms. Is there a cure? I, I don't know of one. Yeah. Yeah. Neuropathy can be so frustrating sometimes, and sometimes we don't even find a cause. Uh, often it's just this burning pain in the feet, maybe numbness. Uh, it could, the number one reason is diabetes. So a person should get tested for diabetes. Um, but it could be from your back too, back pain and, and, and hurting the nerves that way, in addition to all the things you talked about. So, or definitely a reason to go see your doctor. Um, Greg, uh, why do old, severe ankle sprains hurt or still feel tender infrequently years after a sprain? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great question. So what we think happens uh, with, with folks, that, it, that, that the good news is the vast majority of ankle sprains will turn into a non-entity, but there are some that linger on. Um, if, if the ligaments that support the ankle are, are, are damaged significantly, people will have residual instability of that ankle. And so uh, as time goes on, that instability lets, that, lets that, that the, the bottom bone in the ankle joint called the talus just move too much in there. Um, and that can be a source of arthritis. It can be a source of impingement. Uh, uh, in, in other words, something pinching in through there. And it can just, in general, make the joint angry. And it, it, the thing that's frustrating about both ankle arthritis and in, in people that have recurrent stability issues is that it really seems to vary for them. There's there's times when it doesn't hurt them at all and there's times when they're quite debilitated by it and it seems to change even on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, again, in, in, in my hands, I think if, if it's there more often than not, it's probably reasonable to go explore it and see if there's something that can be done about it. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Harold Clark from Yale, South Dakota asks, I stubbed my little toe a couple of weeks ago and it's still swollen and red. Should I go get it checked out? Need an x-ray. I'd get an x-ray. Even if you broke the little toe, at least you know why you're having the symptoms. Surgical shoe or a stiff-soled shoe is probably going to be all you need. You can try buddy taping the toe together. I mean, those are kind of the simple things for a toe fracture. Once you get the swelling and everything to come down, even if you end up, if it doesn't heal completely back, if the pain goes away, an asymptomatic or a non-symptom, uh, non-union, it's better than having a, a pain that conti uh, continues just because we don't know what's causing it. So yeah, I would, you know, at least an x-ray would help you out to see what's the cause. Is there something more going on? There could be ligamentous or other issues to the, the, the joint of the little toe connecting to the foot. Um, there's some other things that can go on. It could even be a fifth metatarsal fracture that causes the, the toe to, to, to swell up. So um, doesn't hurt to have it looked at. Yeah, I've definitely had friends that have frustrating toe, little toe that just won't seem to heal up. Uh, this caller from Belmont asks, I had surgery in my toe a few years ago, which killed the nerve. Since then, I have had consistent swelling in my foot. Is the surgery related to the swelling? 
what would you say about that? And granted, we need more information, really. But. Yeah, yeah. Again, that that's really hard to hard to tell without looking at X-rays and examining the patient. You know, uh, unfortunately, sometimes during surgeries, uh, you know, things can happen to nerves and and and, and whatnot, and and sometimes that can that can be a lingering issue, uh, maybe a problem if hardware was used, maybe a problem with the hardware. Now it can have, you know things might not have gone quite the way that, that you wanted to as time has gone on. So I think in that situation, it's probably good to be good to have, a, have another set of eyes look at it and, and uh, see what see what they can be can be found. This uh, caller from Sioux Falls asks, are shin splints a form of compartment syndrome? Hmm. Would you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, so this is, a, is, a, is an interesting area. So shin splints, uh, by their actual definition, is just inflammation of the soft tissue covering where the muscle attaches to the bone. And, uh, and in your lower leg, those run up and down pretty much the whole leg. Uh, so we tend to see that a lot with, uh, with people when they start exercising a lot. Um, they're not used to it and they overdo it and so that in, it creates inflammation in there. Compartment syndrome is when there gets to be swelling or, 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 or bleeding or, or some, something inside the compartment where those muscles run. So it's not really inflammation at where the where the muscle attaches. It's in the whole compartment, and that swelling occurs so much that it then constricts or restricts the the blood supply to that uh, to, to that to that compartment of, of muscle, and that can that can be a very significant uh, significant thing for people. Yeah, that almost also makes me think of tarsal tunnel syndrome. If you wouldn't mind saying the difference with that, uh, Tyler, uh, compared to what, well, I guess. You know, we, we were talking about compartment syndrome can squeeze can squeeze air, and, and in some ways, yep. the inf inflammation with shin splints. But I, I consider tarsal tunnel syndrome in in a way like uh, carpal tunnel syndrome of the hand and numbness and, and the, the nerves getting squeezed. How, what is tarsal tunnel syndrome? So the tarsal tunnel is actually there's an area between. You're on the inside of your ankle from, you'll feel that kind of knob, it's called the medial malleolus, and it goes to the Achilles tendon. There's an area through there. That's where your uh, tibial nerve runs, your posterior tibial artery. You have a vein that runs through there. You also have some tendinous structures that also go in that area. And each of these structures essentially have their own little compartment to them, and all of them together make up the tarsal tunnel. And like uh, Andrew said, when you get that carpal tunnel, you can get an impingement on the nerve this kind of goes along with the neuropathy question of, you know, is it the back problem? Is it something else? You can get an impingement of the tibial nerve that's causing numbness, tingling, burning, pain in the bottom of the foot, pain in the heel. Um, it's not always plantar fasciitis. You can have tarsal tunnel syndrome as well. And once you get that nerve released, usually it requires a surgery, but not always. Um, we oftentimes will get an EMG, which is a nerve study that checks the nerve, you know, to find out is it tarsal tunnel, is it, uh, a peripheral neuropathy, is it a radiculopathy, is it all these big words that we use for nerve pathology or nerve problems, um, but it, it could very well just be an impingement of a nerve or a, a pinching of the nerve in the medial side of the ankle that needs to be released. Yeah, excellent. Well, it, I'm sorry if we don't get to everyone's questions. In the, in, the pat, in the last minute here, 30 seconds, any final words of advice you have for our patients? Yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, you don't have to live in discomfort with foot and ankle things. Uh, if, they're, if it's bothering you, it's probably good to go be seen and evaluated and check it out. Uh, a lot of times these are nagging chronic things and, and again, if you're finding it impacting your life, it's, it's good to go check it out now. Unfortunately, we don't have answers for everybody 100% of the time, but, uh, but we, we can, can uh, hopefully help, uh, help out a, a lot of people and so there's no, no need to be miserable if you no are. No need, especially when you consider 
sure how important your feet are to staying active and staying healthy and you know to be sitting around on the couch all the time because your feet hurt that'll just hurt you in so many ways and so there's plenty of great doctors here that are, are happy to help and and try to make a difference uh, so excellent thank you both so much for coming on the show My pleasure and, and everything the winner of our prize tonight is Jim from Chamberlain thank you Jim for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show a gift will be sent to you we'll be back after this Based on science built on trust, grab a copy of your local newspaper to read the Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Over 130 newspapers in the region carry the article. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc today. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns. If you have pain on the bottom of your foot at the heel, Especially when you take your first steps of the day, you likely have plantar fasciitis. One of the most common causes of foot pain, plantar fasciitis pain can subside with time, but sometimes the pain keeps people from doing what they love, whether that be running, walking, or other pleasures of life. I once saw a young woman suffering from plantar fasciitis who got some relief from an injection. A few years later, she returned wanting another injection so she could dance pain-free at her own wedding. The bottom of the foot has thick white fibers called the plantar fascia. On one end, it connects to the heel bone and on the other, the fibers connect to each of the toes. This helps support the foot, tightening as we walk and keeping the arch of the foot elevated like the bowstring, maintaining the curve of the bow. Pain can arise from stress on the plantar fascia where it connects to the heel bone, the tuberosity of the calcaneus. This spot, right by the heel on the underside of the foot, can be quite tender to touch when plantar fasciitis is active. It often is most painful when first walking in the morning or after periods of rest. The pain can linger for months or years. Sometimes referred to as heel spurs, on x-ray, this spot may show calcifications in the fascia that have formed from years of stress or inflammation. The presence of these heel spurs does not necessarily mean someone will have pain. Some have pain from plantar fasciitis without heel spurs, and some with heel spurs do not have pain. Causes of plantar fasciitis include poor fitting shoes, starting a new exercise routine such as running, obesity, prolonged running or standing, flat feet, and more. The exact cause remains unclear. Initial treatments include avoiding activities that make it worse, stretching exercises that may include pointing the toes upward and stretching the calf muscles, avoiding the use of flat shoes, avoiding walking barefoot, heel shoe inserts, a short-term trial of NSAIDs like ibuprofen, or possibly a steroid injection. Later, if needed, molded inserts, night splints, immobilization in a boot or cast, or even surgery may be considered. Thankfully, even without treatment, plantar fasciitis may often go away on its own within a year. Plantar fasciitis may only be a spot on the bottom of the foot, but I do not envy those who are reminded of it with every step.
Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Neely and Dr. Harrell, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about orthopedics. If you would like to see and hear more episodes, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. with the importance of eating healthily, exercising, and having regular checkups with our doctor. These are also crucial to ensure good eye health, eyes, connection to your overall health. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. Having access to trusted public health information is essential for thriving communities across South Dakota. As Americans, we all value the ability to make appropriate decisions about our health care. To do so, we need access to quality information from reliable sources. The Prairie Docs and their guests have been providing such information based on science and built on trust for the past 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth-Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. As we move into our 21st season of Prairie Doc programming, Board members, doctors, and volunteers continue to follow our mission to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. Your donation to support Prairie Dog programming makes an extraordinary difference in fulfilling this important mission. Your generosity helps strengthen the Healing Words Foundation and expand the reach of trusted healthcare providers to share important health information that empowers individuals and families to make the decisions that are right for them. Donations from individuals comprise 50% of the funds generated by the Foundation to support Prairie Dog programming, and gifts of any size serve to enhance its impact. Please consider a personal or corporate gift today just go to prairiedoc.org to donate. Should you prefer not to donate online, please reach out to us by email and Foundation staff will follow up with you about a pledge. Many thanks for supporting the mission of the Healing Words Foundation and Prairie Doc Programming in South Dakota and throughout our region. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tail Communications.